I, we're heading towards Mark chapter 13. I've got, to, I've got to tell you this. I would not have picked this text nor this topic this morning uh, just to get into and to study because of the times and the events lest we sound like we're preaching doom and gloom and becoming very negative with what's going on. But because we have been doing this study in the Gospel of Mark all the way back to September of last year, and we are now on lesson number 41, we've been doing it on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, and because we're in the section of the Gospel of Mark that we're in that period of time that is the Passion Week, I thought it was just so convenient for us to just continue in the Gospel of Mark and go into that period where we're dealing in chapter 13, that last week of Jesus Christ's ministry. Let's uh, engage in that Bible study. Jesus has been preaching, he's been and teaching. He's been going about for the last two, through almost three years, three and a half years, that he's been ministering and going about. And now in his final week, he comes to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he is going to have several events that are going to take place that we're very familiar with. But he's going to be now instructing the crowds, instructing his disciples. He's traveled. There's been a lot of pilgrims that have shown up. And as Jesus comes into this final week, you remember the setting that Jesus on that Sunday came in. The crowds went wild. Hallelujah. The Son of God, Son of David is here, I should say. And they're having what we call Palm Sunday. And so they had all of that parade and that event. And then on Monday, what happened is that week he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. And then he stands guard at the temple and making sure that nobody else is coming in, but rather there is prayer and the worship. So nobody else as far as the vendors, those disrupting. And he's challenged everybody to make this a house of prayer. The leadership is upset with him. And they're wondering why he is doing this. And yet they don't stop him. Nobody does anything. So on Tuesday when he returns to that ministry of working in the temple, that's when the leaders are bold enough that they confront him. And there's a series of five, six different challenges that take place and they challenge. And the first one was, by what authority do you do this? And then it went into other, tri- other types of questions and debates in order to undermine Jesus' popularity, to try to, to try to make him look foolish. You know, what about this coin? You know, should we pay taxes to the Romans? What about this woman who's had seven husbands, all of them brothers? Whose wife will she be in the end times? And they went on with those series of debates. And Jesus has masterfully uh, refuted every one of their accusations, every one of their tricks, and he's shown them for what they are, that they're, they're foolish men trying to oppose the truth. And so it's the end of Tuesday when we come to Mark chapter 13. They're wrapping up that day, and what happens is Jesus leaves the area of the temple like he apparently had done the last couple days. He leaves and he and his disciples are walking out of the city. And as they're walking out of the city and they're headed towards the Mount of Olives, which many assume is the place where he's camping out uh, the last couple nights of that week, uh, that there he heads for that Mount of Olives once again. And as they're leaving the city, the disciples are going to make comments about the temple. We read in Mark chapter 13, starting verse 1. As he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And, uh, and that makes sense. The, the reason that they're so fascinated with the temple is it is just an absolutely fabulous facility. 
And sometimes we, we don't get the full picture. But Herod's temple, which was a rebuilding of the modest temple that was done under the ministries of Joshua and Zechariah in that, in that period just a couple hundred years before, uh, 300 years before. Then all of a sudden Herod comes in and Herod the king starts a building program of renovating and remodeling and expanding the temple. He started it in around 18 BC and he continued it through his lifetime and his successors continued it all the way up to 65 AD. And so this place becomes spectacular. It is absolutely beautiful. Though the temple proper, the one major building was done in 10 years, the rest of the grounds, which covers an area of about 30 acres of, pro- 35 acres of property, they're expanding, they're adding to it, they're developing it more, and so that ongoing work project is making it more beautiful and better, and so Jesus is in that time period where it is already fabulous, and the disciples and all the Jews are proud of this temple, how wonderful it looks, and how beautiful it is, and so it's made with these massive stones that are covered with all kinds of marble as well as gold as well as cedar on the wood areas in the trim work and it is said that when you approach the city you would see the temple itself glistening from the sunlight when they would hit it just right. And so everybody was amazed by this. Even some of the Roman writers that talk when they come in that siege area, they say that this beautiful, this temple looks absolutely beautiful. And so the disciples, country boys from Galilee, they come down to Jerusalem and they are absolutely enamored by the beauty of this temple, by the size of the temple, by the greatness of the temple. And so with Jesus on that Tuesday night, they're walking out of the city and as they're walking out, they have to go past the walls of the temple and they're getting going up the hill to Mount of Olives which overlooks the temple area and they're making that comment that this is an absolute, oh look how beautiful the temple is. Isn't it wonderful? And as they make those comments Jesus makes a response and his response we read that he just says in verse 2. He says and answers them as they marvel as they are showing him the beauty of the temple as if he hadn't seen it. He says, seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then Jesus goes on from that verse through the rest of this chapter, giving prophecies about future events, future to the Jews. This happens to be the longest period of, of teaching recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And most of it is all prophetic uh, throughout this chapter. And so with that in mind, before we go any further, I want to give you some principles that you keep in mind in studying prophecy in general, but especially Mark chapter 13. And so as you're following along, fill in the notes, just mark down these five different thoughts. These will be helpful to you in this study as well as the next study and when you do your own personal study in Mark chapter 13. Let's remind ourselves that any singular prophetic passage has to be understood in context of what has already been given. The, the idea that we have here is that all prophecy is a building of a, a stair-step idea, a staircase idea where one prophecy is built upon another and upon another and upon another. And so when you and I are doing our Bible study, we can't just all of a sudden jump into this New Testament passage and not take into account they already have some knowledge. They already have some predictions that he is building upon. So keep that in mind that when you study the book of Revelation, you'll have to have an understanding of the prophecies like Daniel, like where, where the prophecies of Matthew 24, the prophecies of Thessalonians, where he gives a lot of different details. So that's a one general principle to keep in mind. A second general principle is this. 
focus on application and the challenge in the prophecy, not just learning trivia, Bible, Bible details, and getting caught up with all the minutia and forget the bigger picture of what they're trying to teach us. Prophecy is given to benefit us, not just to tickle our fancies, to, to help us to just get uh, trivia knowledge. The idea that we read in Scripture is the impact of that prophecy should have to our lives, and some texts more than others. We read that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world while we are looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope should impact us, should encourage us to have godly lives, knowing that the rapture could happen any moment. We read elsewhere in Scripture where Peter writes, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. He's talking in in the previous verses about the world will be consumed by fire and will be totally destroyed. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness while looking for and really hoping it comes quickly, the coming of the day of God? And so prophecy is supposed to have an impact in our lives like John wrote. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and every man that hath this hope in him, it should impact him. It should, he should be purified, living godly, even as Jesus Christ is pure. So as I mentioned, prophecy always has impact. And when, when John wrote Revelation, he reminded the readers, blessed is he that reads, they that hear the prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. And so the practical application of prophecy is very, very important. Let me give you a third principle to keep in mind. Number three, that in this particular text that we're talking about is very Jewish. You have a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, teaching Jewish students, the twelve, that are talking about the Messiah, which is a Jewish concept. Though he has impact around the world, it's all about Messiah and the coming of Messiah. That was very Jewish in the thinking. He's going to talk about how in, in uh, your preaching and in your teaching and your witnessing, he's, re- he's saying in the future, it's going to impact, you're going to be hauled before Jesus. Jewish courts, the synagogues uh, that he mentions in particular. And then he makes a reference in verse 14. He says, remember the prophecy of Daniel, referring to the abomination of desolation. And so he's very, very, very focused on the passage, focused on the Jews and how it affects them. In fact, in verse 22, and as we jump all the way towards the end of the passage, we'll see two passages, two verses where it talks about even the elect could be seduced, verse 22, by the false teachers. And then he makes this comment that he says that in verse 30, Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be. As I understand that text, uh, the elect is referring to the people of Israel, the, cho- the nation of Israel who has been elected to survive the tribulation, to be God's chosen nation. And when he says this generation, the word literally can be translated, this nation shall not pass away, which makes perfect sense. The Jews will survive the tribulation, though they are going to be the ones who are going to be the most persecuted, and it'll be the worst holocaust ever in history. And so this is a Jewish passage. We keep in mind when we study it that it has to deal with them and there's no real mention of the church in this text. This is all prophecy, as we'll talk about in the next session, that doesn't even involve us, most of it, because we're not going to be there. Uh, Let me give you a fourth principle. 
remember that the Old Testament has already revealed two major facts that the disciples knew well. When they asked Jesus the question, you know, when is this all going to happen? What are you talking about? After he's predicted that there's going to be a destruction of Jerusalem, Matthew says that they even ask, are you going to set up your kingdom now? Are you going to set up your kingdom right away? The reason that they're saying it is because they understood Old Testament prophecy. They understood certain things were predicted in the Old Testament. They knew that, one, the Messiah would set up a heavenly kingdom one day. Messiah's coming. He'll set up God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. Multiple passages. Christmas passage. Uh, for unto us is born the, the, the child, and he's going to be the wonderful counselor, and he's going to have this ever-increasing kingdom that, uh, that will never be stifled. So we read about that in multiple Old Testament passages, but they also knew this. They also knew that just before the kingdom of God would come to this earth, there would be a period of time, we, un- we know it more clearly as seven years, but they understood there would be a period of time where there would be tremendous hardship and tremendous persecution of the Jews just before the kingdom of God is set up. Let me show you what I mean by that. We have this period of time mentioned throughout the Old Testament. We call it the tribulation. Jesus called it the tribulation, Matthew 24. But if you go through a lot of Old Testament passages, he called it a whole variety of other names to give the idea terrible persecution, day of the Lord, terror, day of reckoning, day of wrath, trouble and distress, destruction, desolation, Jacob's distress, great and terrible day of the Lord. So they knew there was coming a period of time that was going to be a horrible, awful time for the Jews right before the kingdom would come. And so Jesus is adding additional information to that concept. Jesus is building upon it, and what he does is he gives in this text two specific future prophecies that are tied together. I think they're tied together. The one typifies and is a small picture of what's going to happen in the bigger period of time. And the two are this. The two are the destruction of the temple, and then he's going to talk about that great tribulation just before he sets up his kingdom. And so in talking to the disciples, he makes this comment to them, and he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem where he said in verse 2, see that this great building that you are so enamored with, there's going to come a time very soon that there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so he's talking about what's going to happen in just a few years. He's referring to a future event. Remember, he's speaking right around 28 A.D. Jesus is referring what's going to happen in 70 A.D., in the very near future, to this beautiful, magnificent, wonderful temple that the disciples think is the absolute just the epitome of their Jewish nation and their Jewish culture and their Jewish stability. And he's going to show it's not there. He's going to say to them that this is going to be destroyed. Now, here's what we know historically. We know Jesus was 100% accurate because what happened in right around 66 AD, the Jews revolt against the Romans. Now, this is going to be, again, several decades after Jesus has already ascended to heaven. The Jews went into a revolt against the Romans. The Romans respond. General Vespasian at the time leads the army into that area to put down the revolt. While he is there in the first few months, all of a sudden he's called away to go back to Rome. He goes back to Rome to become the new Caesar, the new emperor, and he leaves his son to be there who is going to continue to... to uh, Uh, continue the campaign against the Jews. 
And so his son Titus uh, campaigns against the revolutionaries. And basically the Jews all muster to Jerusalem at a period of time. So right around 67, the, the city of Jerusalem just escalates in population. Usually they thought a great number of people would be 200,000 that would show up for the Passover season. Well, records indicate that by the time the siege comes along, and in this period of time, just close to 70 AD, that all the Jews that rallied to the capital, the Jews that went there in order to defend Judaism, got numbered up to 600,000 Jews that were gathered together at that point. And so those people who were trying to join the rebels, those who were caught outside the walls, uh, Titus, he persecuted a lot of them. The Romans were tired of all these revolutions and these, these forays that they had against the Jews. And it numbered up to 500 a day that they were crucifying. And the roads were just lined with bodies and crosses of criminals, rebels. And so the, the campaign continued until finally what happens is they're able to uh, overcome the defenders. And by the way, inside the walls, we have record that many of the Jews were killing Jews. If anybody suggested that they should negotiate, that they should stop the rebellion, then the zealots would kill those people off. And so inside the city was a lot of chaos. Outside the city were the conquerors who eventually they breach the walls and they come in and they take over and they totally annihilate the people inside, wipe them out for the most part, except for basically handfuls that escaped, and they level the city. They tear it down so there's not a stone upon stone. They spread it with salt, and they basically, the city becomes just, a, just a, an absolute mass place of, uh, of killing. Over a million Jews are killed throughout this campaign. And so it's one of the worst times in Jewish history that, that Jesus predicted that would happen several decades afterwards. And so we know that Jesus in his preaching that he was very clear, very accurate. Oh, by the way, just a historical side note, many of the believers who were in the region of Judea during that time of that Romans when they came in for this campaign, most all of them fled and, re and got out of there because they understood the prophecies of Jesus that this was going to be a terrible time. And later in the text, he suggested that you better flee from Judea. And they took it literally that it meant that very time. And so we have records of most of the believers who had been, uh, been discipled and stayed in Jerusalem. They left the region and very few believers were killed during that campaign compared to the Jews as a whole. So Jesus comes along. He's absolutely correct in his teaching that he gave in just that one verse that he tells them. And the, the disciples, they're hearing this. They're hearing that their temple, which is so beautiful and proper, that it's going to be destroyed. And I think the rest of the chapter builds upon this prophecy as a type of future conquest. And so Jesus is making his comments. The disciples, they are going to ask some questions. And I'll get into their question a little bit later in the next session. But Jesus goes on right after that and says, oh, by the way, after this, after all this, you know, be careful, be, uh, take heed, he says, because there's going to be a second period of terrible destruction, and that's what he talks about in verses 5 to the rest of the trap, chapter that we call the tribulation. And so jumping into that, uh, let's, let's set the scene. The disciples hear about the destruction. They walk up the rest of the hill. They get to the top of the hill. They're looking down into the city. They're sitting now in the Mount of Olives, as the text says, and James, John, and Andrew, Peter, come to him and they say, we, what did you mean by that? Did you mean that all of a sudden 
uh, you know, when Jerusalem destroyed, you're going to set up your kingdom? They ask in verse, verse 4, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign when all these things be fulfilled? Uh, we would read elsewhere in Matthew that they say, is this the sign of, is this when you're going to set up your kingdom? The reason they ask those questions is because of their knowledge of other events, other prophecies. Zechariah 12 spoke of a future destruction of Jerusalem. It said this, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto the, all the people round about. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem, all the people of the earth shall be gathered against it. And so the disciples are thinking, is that what you're referring to, Jesus? Is that what you're talking about? Well, we know it's the Roman siege, but based on their knowledge, they're wondering, okay, is that what you're talking about? And in two chapters later, Zechariah wrote about Jerusalem being attacked. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the battle shall be taken and the houses plundered, the woman raped. Zechariah went on to make this comment that at that time when that happened, shortly thereafter, Messiah will come and set up kingdom. See, the Lord will go out and fight against these nations when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And it goes on to describe that he will bring righteousness to the earth and set up his kingdom. So the disciples are listening to Jesus talk about destruction. They don't know it's going to be by the Romans. He hasn't clarified that. We know that. We just shared what, what happened. But they're listening to Jesus and they're thinking, wait a minute. Zacharias said Jerusalem will be attacked, it'll be destroyed, and then Messiah sets up the kingdom. So that's prompted their question in verse 4, and in Matthew 24, is that when you set up the kingdom? And now Jesus will say, no, 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 uh, and he's going to explain there's going to be another period of total devastation, worse than, the, than what he's mentioned in verse 2. It's going to be, as we know, the tribulation period, and he describes it. And he gives us several different ideas about that tribulation when he goes in verse 5 and says, Take heed lest any man deceive you. And he starts saying, here's what's going to happen. Don't get caught up. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by what's going to happen in the future. Many shall come in my name saying, I am the Christ and it shall deceive many. So what he tells us is that the beginning of this time period will involve all kinds of problems. And he describes in verse 6, 7, Eight, and look at the end of verse 8. He says, these are just the beginnings of sorrows. Now, some of you have a different translation. The word sorrows is literally the idea of birth pangs. It's the beginning of all of a sudden, you know, here comes, here comes, okay, the, the, um, the whole issue of you know, going into labor and it's the beginning and it's going to build up, build up, build up like, like labor does. And so he's saying this is just the beginning. And in describing the beginning of the tribulation, he makes the comment that it's going to include a lot of false messiahs. What I read in verse 6. He will then in verse 22 add to that and say it will increase for false Christs and false prophets will rise, show signs and wonders, do the miracles. The miracles that we know about with additional revelation, making statues speak. Uh, miracles of saying a resurrection for Antichrist from the dead. And so all those miracles will take place to seduce, if it were possible, even the Jewish people even the elect. So there's going to be in this beginning period a lot of false messiahs. There's going to be in this beginning of this final years, just before his return, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. Be not troubled, 
for such things must needs be, but the end is not yet. We're still in the beginning period. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then he describes that, that there's going to be all these conflicts. And I want you to remember that at the time that he's telling this, the world that the Jews know is a world of peace. The, the Jews are living in the period of what the Romans calling it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And in this time of history, everybody was saying, we've got peace like never before in all of history. And they could travel, they could go about, and God used the Pax Romana to spread the gospel in those initial years. But Jesus is saying later on, there's going to come a time period that it's going to be the most incredible period of warfare and conflict that the world has ever known. He describes it as well that it's going to be one filled with natural disaster. Verse 8, the second part of the verse, there shall be earthquakes all over the place, in diverse places, in strange places. And then he adds to it, not only will there be earthquakes, but there's going to be famines and troubles. And added to that is Matthew 24, verse 7 adds, and pestilences, viruses and diseases that will be pandemic-like. And so he describes this time of being just a horrible time. And he adds to it even worse. He says there's going to be opposition to those who are believers. Those who are of the Jewish faith and as well the Christian faith. He says, take heed to yourselves. They shall deliver you up to councils, synagogues, you'll be beaten. You shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, okay, because of Christ, for a testimony against them. That is, you're going to give a witness against them. And he talks in verse 11 that they shall lead you, deliver you, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither premeditate, but whatsoever you shall be given you in that hour that you shall speak, it shall be given you basically by the Holy Spirit. And so he talks about in verse 12, brother shall betray brother at the time, father and son. Children shall rise up against parents. There shall, they shall cause them to be put to death. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And so we learn there's no family loyalty. There's not going to be a, you know, blood is thicker than water. It's gone. It's gone because of believers being persecuted by relatives who aren't saved. Accusations, death, hated by all men, all because of faith in Christ. And so he's describing this period. And then what he does, and this is all the beginning of it, and it matches Revelation chapter 6, verses, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 as well. And uh, that's for another study. But then he goes on in this text and he says, let me describe the middle of the tribulation. And that's where we begin in verse 14 where he says, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet, standing something, standing where it ought not to stand, okay, then let them that are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's he mean by that? Where does that come from? Now, let's jump back and remind ourselves, the abomination of desolation isn't a new phrase in Scripture. The abomination of desolation was mentioned three times in the, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, he mentions it as a prediction for the future uh, in, in this time period of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 12 is also in prediction to the period called the tribulation. Daniel 11 is not 
something that is in future to us but something historically past just like the destruction of Israel that it plays into as a symbol as an idea of what's going to happen into the future. Let's explore Daniel chapter 11 just for a second. In Daniel 11 we read about the abomination of desolation taking place and the fellow who created this was a Greek general a Seleucid of that Seleucid family that came into the area of Jerusalem, Palestine as a conqueror as one who was trying to subjugate the Jews. And Antiochus Epiphanes came in and attacked right around 168 B.C. And, when, and the Jews understood this. They knew all about this. This would be history to the disciples hearing about the abomination of desolation. They would immediately think back to what, uh, what they already know in their history that happened 140 years ago that all of a sudden this Antiochus Epiphanes had raided their land and when he raided the land he overcame Jerusalem. And he went into the temple and in the temple to show his disdain for Judaism he set up a statue of Zeus in the courtyard and then he had a pig slaughtered on the altar. And we all understand why the Jews would be, would be absolutely flabbergasted by that, offended by that. One, a Gentile making the sacrifice, and then it having to be an unclean animal, the swine that was sacrificed. And so then what happened is that, that event that Antiochus did, it basically solidified the Jews into a major, major revolt. And they revolted and got independence for a couple decades uh, before the Romans came in and the Romans took over. And so they know when he says, oh, there's going to be a future um, abomination of desolation. It's going to be as bad, if not worse, than what Antiochus Epiphanes did in the past. And so Jesus says, in the middle of that last few years before I come back, in the midst of all this chaos and pestilences and famines and diseases and warfare, there's going to be desecration of the temple, which we know that means there's going to be a rebuilt temple in the future. And we know from other passages exactly what that is. Okay, And so Jesus is giving information that we have been added to after Jesus spoke these words. We can go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and we learn more about what it is. We can go to Revelation 13 and we get clarification of what it is. And we know that what he's talking about in those texts is that during that last period of time, just before he comes back, we know it as seven years. In that last period of time, what will happen is Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation will break his treaty Okay, and, and they've seen, they've heard all about what's going on around the world roundabout, but all of a sudden he will come against the Jewish people at the middle point of the tribulation, break the treaty. He uh, goes into the temple and takes over the Western world, and, and he assumes not only dictatorial powers, but he will enter into the rebuilt temple, into the Holy of Holies, and according to those other texts that I've given you in Second Thessalonians, as well as Revelation, that he will declare he is Messiah, he is Emmanuel, he will declare he is God in the flesh. That will be the abomination of desolation spoken of here in this text as well as in Second Thessalonians Revelation chapter 13. And so Jesus is predicting the middle point of the tribulation. Antichrist will come to authority. You who are in Judea, you who are in Jerusalem, when you see this, get out of there. Flee for your lives. Run. Flee quickly, all of you Jews. It'll become worse than ever in history. Look at on verse 19. For in those days shall 
be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And so Jesus is predicting and he's saying this is going to be the worst persecution of the Jews ever. And we read already from Zechariah and we know from Revelation that two-thirds of the Jews will die during this time period. And so it'll be, it'll be worse than the million dying that he's referred to in the prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans back in verse 2. He's saying that, that future time period is going to be so bad that most of you will die during that time period. Then he gives information about the end of that tribulation period. He starts talking about how except the Lord had shortened those days in verse 20, no flesh should be saved, but, the elect's, but for the elect's sake, whom he had chosen, he will shorten the days. Uh, and then he talks about how there will be so much, again, he repeats the idea, so much false teachings. But then he jumps down to verse 24. In those days, after the tribulation, so we're now at the very end of it, the sun shall be darkened. The moon shall not give her light. The stars of heaven shall fall. And the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. And so what we have is Jesus physically, personally coming from heaven to earth. And so he's answered the question. You know, in that destruction of Jerusalem predicted at the beginning of the chapter, is that when you're going to set up the kingdom? He said, no, no, not yet. Not yet. There's going to be what Zechariah predicted is even future beyond 70 AD. It's going to be worse than what happened in 70 AD. And it has a beginning point with all these chaos and troubles and, and warfare and pestilences. And then it has a middle point when Antichrist will take over and he's going to persecute. And then at the end, I'm going to return. That's when I return at the end. And again, we know he's talking about a seven-year period. That's further explained in the book of Revelation when he gives us the exact so many days from the beginning to the middle, from the middle to the end. But at this point, they're still, you know, they don't have all of the details, but Jesus is saying, here's what I'm giving you. And when I come back, I'm going to gather all the Jews, all of those who will call upon me Messiah from all over the world where they are suffering persecution. I'm going to rescue them. And I'm going to gather them. And I'm going to be their Messiah and their king. And I'm going to set up my kingdom on earth at that moment. So Jesus has given some details that are very, very important. But here's what I want to just bring us together here in this session. He said several times in this passage, as we've gone through just real quickly the details, I want you to catch something. He says in verse 5, take heed, lest any man deceive you. He says it in verse, five, verse 9, but take heed to yourselves. He says it again towards the end of the chapter in verse 23. Take heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. And we didn't get into this part yet, but he'll, we'll do it in the next session. Verse 33, take heed. Those are all imperatives. They are all for every one of who's listening, not just the disciples, but for us who would read this, for those who will live in that time period, <coughs> excuse me, he's saying take heed. And the idea of that word take heed is very important. It's the idea you've got to be clear in your minds. You have to understand. You have to think clearly, think right, be wise. What he means by that is several things in context. He means, number one, don't be deceived. 
And that he's repeated multiple times. Be careful. Be careful of deception. Be careful. Uh, you know, I've, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you all the events. So when it comes to prophecy, make sure you get it right. When it comes to listening to false teachers, don't be deceived. Don't be caught off. And remember, the deception is so great that even the elect would be deceived in this time if Christ doesn't cut the time short. And so obviously take heed means get your prophecy right. Get, make sure you understand the time frame that I'm giving you. Make sure you don't in, uh, read into prophecy, uh, some current affair events that don't apply or vice versa. So take heed. Be wise in your, in your understanding of, of prophecy. It also, you know, we, we just add that idea of get the facts straight. It also has the idea of don't be deceived by the false teachers. Don't get caught off guard by false religions. And they are propagating. They are, they are obviously growing in our day. But also in the disciples' era. They, they had false teachers immediately come and challenge the Christian truth. Don't be deceived. And we talked about it when we were in the God Forbid series. Don't be deceived by adding works to your salvation. Don't be deceived by all of a sudden these wonderful, beautiful looking religions that have phenomenal buildings like the temple where there was a lot of deception taking place. Don't be deceived by all of this. And so Jesus is making sure, okay, my disciples, stick to the truth. My disciples, make sure you get the facts straight about the truth and uh, you know, all those details. And he ends the parable, uh, ends this section with two parables about his, his future coming. And in both of those parables that we'll look at in the next session, they're both stressing the idea that his coming could be soon. His coming could be soon. It could be soon. All these events could be coming soon, and nobody knows the time. And so he makes it very clear. But where I want to end up on this session is this thought. If we're to be wise, if we're to take heed, then we're to, from this text, we're supposed to be able to find some challenge, some application of these predictions and say, what do they teach us? A lot of this doesn't apply to our time period. But is there something illustrated? Is there a principle demonstrated that is very applicable to us in this time period right at this moment? Take heed. Be wise. Not only know the facts, but be discerning. Remember how we started off? All prophecy should have an impact on our lives while we're looking for the blessed hope. And that should purify ourselves. And that we should not only read and listen, but we should do the things written there. What are the do the things that are written in Mark chapter 13? In that first half of the chapter. What should we take heed to and apply to our lives right now at this moment? Can I share with you three major truths? that I think are clearly illustrated in this text. I think number one is this. Although things around us may look permanent, they aren't. Although things around us look permanent, they aren't. But God's Word is. The reason I come to that conclusion that this is a principle for living out of this text is this thought. The disciples were so caught up and so enamored with this temple that to them looked like it's the most amazing building in the world. It will never topple. It will never tumble. It is being built upon decade after decade. And isn't this marvelous? And this, especially what throws me is Jesus has just been down in that temple cleansing it. Jesus has been in that temple showing that there's a lot of false teaching going on. And yet the, the disciples are enamored by the building. 
by the physical surroundings. They're proud of it. They're country boys coming into the big-time city, and they just think, oh, look at these skyscrapers. They are, don't we have such marvelous, aren't we grand? Aren't we great with our technology? Aren't we wonderful with our environment and with our culture and with our Judaistic nationalism? And Jesus has just demonstrated it's not lasting, it's not permanent. As much as you think these stones are wonderful and grand and glorious and you're telling me, the Son of God, look how beautiful they are. And you're pointing it out to me. I'm telling you none of this is going to last. The things that you people build on this earth, the things that you look at on this earth, they are fleeting. They are absolutely fleeting. Aren't we learning that? Aren't we getting a demonstration of that right now, this week? That some of the things that we put so much stock in, they're fleeting. No sports. Some of the vacations, they're done. The, uh, the idea of even looking around and saying some of our, some of our bank accounts, they're, they're rapidly finishing. Our jobs that we, we just think they're going to be there. All of a sudden, our economy. And make America great. And I'm all, all for you know, having a strong economy. But everything is fleeting. Things that we often look for and things we invest our time in and the things that we get all enamored with and all excited about, they're fleeting. And I don't know why the Lord is allowing this. I'm not going to be so presumptuous as to say, oh, this is, this is definitely a, a judgment of God and punishment. I don't know. But I do know this. It demonstrates for me. This truth, this pandemic is demonstrating to me, along with this passage and more of this passage, but with the pandemic, that a whole lot in this world is very fleeting. It is not permanent. And yet, the word of God is. He makes it very clear in this text where he makes the comment down at the end of the chapter, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Folk, this is what we need to be trusting in. This is the only thing we have that is absolutely permanent. Our health is suspect. Our society is fragile. Our fellowship with one, to get one another can be put on hold. But the taking and reading the Word of God and gleaning its promises and learning about God and following Him and get, letting Him reveal Himself to us and guide and direct us, learning how He tells us we are to live even under the pressure of all of a sudden having, having the fear of a germ. Or being in our homes all of a sudden where, where we have a whole new type of interaction as a family that we're together 24-7. This is lasting. The principles, the promises, the challenges, this does not pass away. They are to be applied and lived by day by day even in a fleeting, temporary circumstance, society, and environment that we live in. There's another principle that stands out to me, and I'm going to jump ahead and, and get to it. It's this. Although religions around us may look phenomenal, they may look wonderful. They really aren't. They really aren't. The temple looked great, but inside it was hollow. Inside it was empty. There was corruption. There was false teachings. Jesus has clearly said that. The one thing that is phenomenal, and let's not get caught up with our building and our programs and our abilities or, or opportunities. 
the one thing that is the most phenomenal that we have to keep in mind every single day is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is phenomenal. Jesus Christ is so amazing. How do I get that out of the text? Let me remind you. The disciples are enamored with the temple and the system. And Jesus has has said, wait a minute, there's hollowness there. Be careful. Don't get enamored with it. He repeatedly in the text says, false teachers, false teachers. False teachers that are so impacting. False teachers that are so persuasive so dynamic, so dramatic, so entertaining that they could even fool the elect in that latter days. But Jesus Christ, he is phenomenal because he's the one that knows the future. He knew exactly what was going to happen short decades from when he's speaking. He knows what's going to happen in our future because the rest of the chapter deals with post-us And so he knows all the details. He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal as seen by he comes in glory. Great glory. Phenomenal individual. Amazing individual. We need to believe in him and him alone. We need to make sure he is our savior and our Lord. By the way we respond, the way we act, the way we live, what our priorities are. He's phenomenal. Not religious systems. The word is permanent, not the things around us. Let me give you the third truth. Third truth, although circumstances around us may look bleak, they really aren't. They really aren't. Where I get that from is this time period that he's describing, the worst time period in in, in all of history. And yet, what I learn in this text is, even in the most difficult times, and we're not living in those difficult times, What we have is difficult, but it's nothing like what Jesus has just described. And even in what he describes in those most difficult days, God is at work. God is still at work in Matthew chapter, in Mark chapter 13. God is doing phenomenal things where you read in the passage, where we read where all of a sudden it makes the comment that even though it's the worst time in all of human history, okay, that God can do a work like in verse 10, the gospel must first be published among all nations. Where God will do a work like even in the midst of the greatest persecution, the Holy Spirit, verse 11, will help the believers to know what to say, when to say it. God is at work. God is at work. God is moving in even in those most difficult times. And if he's able to work wonders in that most horrific time that is still future to us, what about us right now? He can work in spreading his word through you and me right now. Even though we're struggling to figure out ways of doing it, it can be done. The opposition and what we face right now is nothing compared to the persecution of the future. And yet the word of God needs to be given out. And it must be published. And God will give believers the ability, the opportunity, the boldness, and the words to say at the right moment. Have you been seeking those right moments to share the word of God? He will care for the believers. He will provide for them. He will care. He will provide for you. This text, though, it talks about the future. We know that even right now, it demonstrates for us that God provides comfort, help, sorrow, direction so that we can know the truth, stay solid in what we're supposed to be staying solid. And so this week, this lesson this week, to go along with what I'm going to share in a few moments, keep this in mind. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord.